Will you guys stand with me to read the words of Matthew and the Holy Spirit? My name is Wilson, by the way, if I've never met. Really glad you're here. All right, Matthew 8, starting in verse 23. Then he, speaking of Jesus, got into the boat, and his disciples followed him. Suddenly, a furious storm came up on the lake, so that the waves swept over the boat. But Jesus was sleeping. The disciples went and woke him, saying, Lord, save us! We're going to drown! He replied, You have little faith. Why are you so afraid? Then he got up and rebuked the winds and the waves, and it was completely calm. The men were amazed and asked, What kind of man is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. When he arrived at the other side in the region of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men coming from the tombs met him. They were so violent that no one could pass that way. What do you want with us, son of God? <laughs> they shouted, Have you come here to torture us before the appointed time? <laughs> Which demon voice is more realistic, do you guys think? <laughs> Some distance from them, a large herd of pigs was feeding. The demons begged Jesus, He said to them, go. So they came out and went into the pigs, and the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and died in the water. Those tending the pigs ran off, went into the town and reported all of this, including what had happened to the demon-possessed men. Then the whole town went out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they pleaded with him to leave their region. Jesus stepped into a boat, Crossed, don't worry, this is the last passage, okay? You know, I'm not reading the whole book of Matthew, okay? Jesus stepped into the boat, crossed over, and came to his own town. Some men brought to him a paralyzed man lying on a mat. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the man, take heart. Take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. At this, some of the teachers of the law said to themselves, this fellow was blasphemy. I'm just kidding. <laughs> it probably was a demon though let's be real at this some of the teachers of the law said to themselves this fellow is blaspheming knowing their thoughts Jesus said why do you entertain evil thoughts in your hearts which is easier to say your sins are, your sins are forgiven or to say get up and walk but I want you to know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins so he said to the paralyzed man, get up, take up your mat and go home. Then the man got up and went home. When the crowd saw this, they were filled with awe and they praised God who had given such authority to man. So we do, we praise you, God. We praise you for the way that you work. Thank you so much for working through Jesus like this, and thank you for working through all the, the leaders in our church this weekend that put on the Overflow Conference and then engaged in it and how your power was poured out. I, I thank you, Lord. We're in awe of what you're doing amidst the leaders and the women in our church right now. We just thank you for it. We honor you, Jesus. Amen.
All right, you can remain standing. I'm just kidding. You can sit down. I saw some people by the end of that were like resting on the chair in front of them. They were like, oh my gosh. Um, so I know that was a lot, okay? I know I just read a lot and that we've been going through Matthew uh, shorter sections than that. But we're doing a two-weeker, okay? So this week and next week, we're gonna go over these three stories. And um, the title of these messages this week and next week is A Day in the Life of the Lord of All Creation. A Day in the Life of the Lord of All Creation. Today's part one. Next week will be part two. And uh, today I'm gonna focus on the in a day in the life of. Okay, that's gonna kind of be my theme. And next week it'll be the Lord of All Creation. So next week we'll be talking about what was Matthew kind of from a theological level, like, you know, Matthew didn't become like, he didn't wake up in the middle of the night and just go like, oh, and like write the book of Matthew. You know, he didn't become possessed by the Holy Spirit and uncontrollably scribble on paper. Then boom, we got the book of Matthew. No, he was someone who did research, who lived a life in a context and decided to recount and to write down a whole um, biography, basically, of Jesus. And as he did that, he had, an in, he had intentions, he had themes, he had um, truth that he was trying to communicate about Jesus and about the world as he did that. Now, he did that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So it's like a special thing when Scripture is written. It is God partnering with man in an incredible way to create Scripture. So that's next week, okay? I'm going to talk not about all that, those weeds I just accidentally got into. I'm just gonna talk about what I think Matthew was trying to communicate to his audience through lining these three stories up, okay? That Jesus was the Lord of all creation. This week, I wanna focus more on this whole idea of imitating and what it would look like if you were an observer in the day, in a day in the life of Jesus. What would you have picked up? What would you have taken if you had been with Jesus as he walked through these three different um, moments in time? And to in before I go any further, to introduce kind of like what I want to talk about today, I want to show you a quick uh, clip. So will you roll that video clip? Kind of blurry. That's better. Question. What kind of bear is best? That's a ridiculous question. False. Black bear. Well, that's debatable. There are basically two schools of thought. Fact. Bears eat beets. Oh. Bears. Beets. Battlestar Galactica. Bears do not... What is going on? What are you doing? Last week, I was in a drugstore and I saw these glasses, uh, $4. And it only cost me $7 to recreate the rest of the ensemble and that's a grand total of $11. You know what? Imitation is the most sincere form of flattery, so I thank you. Identity theft is not a joke, Jim. Millions of families suffer every year. Michael! Oh, that's funny. Michael! 
All right, so I just want to note that this is the second message in a row I have successfully incorporated the office. All right, so yes, you are welcome. I'll try and keep my streak up. Pray for me that I can somehow incorporate the office with the gospel of Jesus Christ next week, all right? But what is hilarious? What do we love about that clip? You know, if you've never seen the show, Jim, the kind of antagonist in that scene, is imitating Dwight, the other guy. You know, he's dressing like him, and this is kind of a subplot of the whole show is Dwight and Jim's relationship, their give and take. And um, what's so funny about that scene is how Jim is imitating Dwight. It's just hilarious, right? And so when he's imitating him, he's copying his behaviors, appearance, speech, even his mindsets in order to achieve his desired goal. So again, imitation is when you copy someone's behaviors, appearance, speech, and even their mindsets in order to achieve your desired end goal. So notice how Jim dressed like Dwight. He walked like Dwight. He talked like Dwight. And he even managed to think like Dwight. So he yells, Michael, predicting that that's the thing that Dwight was just about to do. And then Dwight does that very thing, Michael, and jumps up and runs out of his desk to Michael. So obviously, you know, Jim's end goal here was to get Dwight mad and to be like funny to his coworkers, right? So this was an example of imitation done with the desired end goal of mockery, basically. But there's another form of imitation where your end goal isn't mockery, but you're actually imitating something you admire. Someone, who's a, someone who did this expertly and it really dramatically impacted our um, current society and our country today is Martin Luther King Jr. I'm reading his biography right now, or one of his biographies right now. It's called Bearing the Cross. And what happened, well, one of the things I'm learning right now is that In Montgomery, they had been looking, there was an association of black leaders that had been looking for an opportunity to effectively boycott the buses. And they had seen in other cities um, how when they did these really effective bus boycotts, they got to, they, segregation would shift and rules and laws would change. And so they were imitating other cities on one level but then Martin Luther King Jr., he was the leader of this, the coalition that formed to get the bus boycott to continue. And by the way, did you know that MLK was 26 years old at that point? And that he went to college at age 15? So MLK is leading this um, little movement at the time in Montgomery. You know, we know it turned into something massive and huge and changed the world. But at the time, they were just trying to get more fair uh, seating arrangements on the bus. Their goal wasn't even to like change the law and end segregation. Their goal was just that you could, that, that blacks would start at the back of the bus and get the seat forward as far as they wanted. And the whites would start at the front of the bus and, and get the seat backwards as far as they wanted. So they're kind of like chipping away at the systemic injustice and the racism rather than trying to change everything overnight. They were going step by step. And listen to what I read about another, another way that imitation fits into MLK's life here. This is from the book, Bearing the Cross. While these developments were taking place, 
talking about all the planning they were doing for the bus boycott and actually rolling it out. Because originally, they thought that the city would give in after just like three days of the bus boycott. Because 75% of the riders were black. And so like, obviously the bus company is gonna go under if they don't meet their demands. But when you got people who are possessed by demons, <laughs> it's a lot harder to figure that out. So here's from the book. While these developments were taking place, King was becoming the focus of more attention from the black community. His remarks at the continuing series of Monday and Thursday night mass meetings were drawing growing attention. One observer noted how King increasingly made reference to Mohandas K. Gandhi. A journalist noted, in reminding the fellowship, this is from, the, from a newspaper during the time, in reminding the fellowship, meaning the people who were involved in the bus boycott, that love will win. Martin Luther King Jr. often tells the story of how Mahatma Gandhi, the emaciated emancipator, liberated India with his nonviolence campaign. What King seems to be trying to do is find a suitable adaptation of the Gandhi philosophy, <coughs> imitate, and method and apply it to the Montgomery problem, end quote. One of King's favorite devices in those early meetings was to tell stories about the many black Montgomerians who had to walk to and from work every day, about the sacrifices that every member of the black community was making. And so really quick, you know, what was Gandhi famous for? The Salt March. What Gandhi did was he organized a 24-day, 241-mile march in India to protest the outrageous taxes and the discrimination that the British imperialists, the British colonialists, were imposing upon the indigenous people, the Indians there. And so MLK was appealing to someone else who had mass success and saying, look guys, if we stay the course like how they did in India, we can get breakthrough, we can get um, the justice or the, the, the change in the rules that we want. King's message stressed action, not passivity. Our weapons are protest and love, he told everyone one meeting. And we're going to fight until we take the heart out of Dixie. So we've seen imitation here as a form of mockery, Jim to Dwight, imitation as a form of admiration and transformation from Martin Luther King Jr. But the question we should be asking as followers of Jesus is, does imitation matter to me? Because I'm not a follower of the office, even though you all think I am, you're going to do an intervention soon. And, you know, I want to admonish us, we're not followers of Martin Luther King Jr. either. Great man, we can learn a ton from him. But wherever Martin King Jr.'s life doesn't overlap with Jesus's, we jettison whatever he said and did. Wherever, you know, your favorite politician, Ron DeSantis, Joe Biden, President Biden, whoever, wherever their life doesn't overlap with the life of Christ, we get rid of it. Wherever my life doesn't overlap with the life of Jesus, you disregard it, you don't imitate it. We have someone that we're supposed to imitate, and his name is Jesus. He's our master. He's our discipler. He's our mentor. He's the person that we are trying to hold our life up to and trying to replicate his life. Turn with me in your Bibles or just look up at the screen to Matthew chapter 11. 
Verse 28. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. Think about how baller of a statement that is. Think about like the magnitude of saying something like that. I don't care what your problem is. I mean, I do care. Jesus did care. But he's saying, look, how big or how small, how wide or how deep, how nuanced, how 21st century or how whatever your problem is, come to me and I will give you rest. What a powerful promise. Like who came in today with just a little bit of weary and burden? And you're like, I need some rest. Who came in with a lot of weary and burden? And you're like, I need some rest, okay? Coming to Jesus and we can find, if we come to Jesus, we can find rest. But we must read on. Because he goes on to actually explain and enlighten us about what coming to him actually entails. So continue on in verse 29. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. You'll find rest for your entire being. That's what soul means. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. So what are these these, uh, extra verses, what do they all rest on? Taking Jesus' yoke. If you want rest, you have to take Jesus' yoke upon you. Now, this is a little bit foreign language to us. You know, not many in the room are probably farmers. Maybe some of you were raised in a farming family, but not a ton of us, I think, are currently farmers. And so, let alone farmers 2,000 years ago in Palestine, okay? So this idea of taking someone's yoke is a little bit foreign, but um, John Mark Comer describes really well in his book, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, what this, what this meant. And so I'm going to read you a, a portion of that book right now. And by the way, um, John Mark Comer, I think, is just a real prophetic voice for at least my generation. He communicates things in a way that me as a millennial, and I think probably Gen Z can really relate to it too. It just kind of like, I can't speak for all millennials and Gen Z, but it just really connects and makes sense. He's not necessarily saying stuff that is brand new. Sure, John Mark Comer has new insights. But a lot of what he's saying is stuff that like my mom and dad read back in the 70s and 80s. He's just saying it in a kind of fresh, nuanced way to to reach a certain generation. So this is from the Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. And like every rabbi in his day, Jesus had two things. First, he had a yoke, not a literal yoke. He was a teacher, not a farmer. A yoke was a common idiom, expression, in the first century for rabbi's way of reading the Torah, in other words, the Bible. But it was also more. It was his set of teachings on how to be human, his way to shoulder the at times crippling weight of life, marriage, divorce, prayer, money, sex, conflict, resolution, government, all of it. It's an odd image for those of us who don't live in an agrarian society But imagine two oxen yoked together to pull a cart or plow a field. A yoke is how you shoulder a load. What made Jesus unique wasn't that he had a yoke. All rabbis had a yoke. It was that he had an easy yoke. What made Jesus unique was he had an easy yoke. 
So basically, what we should take from that quote was, a yoke was a common metaphor or expression in Jesus' time for how a teacher interpreted Scripture. And then, if you're a good teacher in the kingdom of God, you don't just interpret Scripture, you apply Scripture to your life based off of your interpretation. And so, a yoke was more than just um, a way of reading the Bible, it was a way of living. It was a way of doing life. So when Jesus is saying, take my yoke upon you, he's saying, take my way of life upon you. Imitate me. Like, bring back WWJD. Somebody, please. That's what Jesus is getting at. Do my way, not your way. Comer goes on to say this. Secondly, Jesus had apprentices. In Hebrew, the word is Talmudim. Obviously, the New Testament wasn't written in Hebrew, but the framework Jesus would have lived from would have had Greek in it, would have had, you know, the Aramaic language influencing it, but primarily Jesus came from a Hebrew worldview. So it's usually translated as disciples, and that's just fine, but I think an even better word to capture the idea behind Talmudim is apprentices. To be one of Jesus' Talmudim is to apprentice under Jesus. Put simply, is to organize your life around three basic goals. Be with Jesus, become like Jesus, do what he would do if he were you. The whole point of apprenticeship is to model all of your life after Jesus, and in doing so, to recover your soul. So to be an apprentice of Jesus means that we are with him, we become like him, and then we do what he would do if he was us, if he was in our shoes. So, what's that sound like to you? Imitate. We're supposed to imitate Jesus. And you know, this idea of imitation was so important to the early church that the foremost, you know, basically theologian of Christianity, the Apostle Paul, even he grabbed hold of this idea of imitation. In 1 Corinthians 1.11, he said, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. And then again, in Ephesians 5, he is admonishing a group of believers who live in Las Vegas, essentially, okay? Like, <clears throat> Las Vegas means Bangkok, Thailand. That's what Ephesus would have been like. Like, super, super spiritual, super, super sexual, just totally broken and messed up. Here's what he tells those guys. Be imitators of God as beloved children. Be imitators of God as beloved children. So this thing about imitating is like intrinsic to our faith. It's intrinsic to our religion. It's intrinsic to how we are supposed to do life is to imitate our master. You know, I have a running master, okay? So I'm a kind of a sp aspiring runner. I've been running lately, and I'm going to do the Flying Pig Marathon here in a couple weeks. So I don't have a ton of experience running, though, and I was only going to do the half marathon, but then I kind of just, like, got super inspired one day. I was on a four-mile run, and I was like, I can do this thing. Let me just run 13.1 miles or whatever right now. And I just ripped it off, honestly, like, not trying to brag or anything, but I did it, and it was fine. Except I didn't warn my wife that I was doing that. And so I like 
had a, we had a search party out in Coleraine because she was super worried about me, you know? But I decided, okay, I'm gonna switch. I'm gonna train for the full marathon. So last Sunday, I ran 22 stinking miles. Somehow, I do not know how, okay, but I did that. And that was my last long run. Now I'm tapering down for in two Sundays when I walk to my deathbed and run 26 miles. But as I'm learning to run like longer distances, there's things I didn't know that I need to account for. Like after you've been running for more than an hour, your body is starting to run low on glucose and sodium. And you need to replenish those, those carbs and that, that glucose and sodium. So Luke's younger brother, Luke's the guy leading worship right here. He's a more advanced runner than me. He didn't, he didn't explain all that to me. He just said, what you need to do is cut up an orange, put salt on it, put it in a plastic bag and keep it in your pocket. And an hour into your run, eat the first slice. A half hour later, eat the next slice. A half hour later, eat the next slice. And then he started giving me, coaching me about hydrating and getting like a little water bottle that I clip on my belt so I look really fancy, you know? And like doing an ice bath. And I was like, heck no, I'm not doing an ice bath, you psycho. But I did these, I have been doing these things because he knows more than me. He's having success. I'm imitating him because I'm not, I'm not like questioning him, give me every little nuance of reason and scientific data. I'm just like, you know more than me, I will just imitate you. I didn't put pepper on my oranges. I put salt on them. They were horrible, it was a terrible experience. But <laughs> my point is I, I'm imitating him as I grow in this area where I'm a novice. Same thing when I first started learning about partnering with the Holy Spirit to um, give prophetic words as the Holy Spirit led or to pray for healing or cast out demons or all that like kind of power ministry. I didn't primarily learn how to do that through reading books. And to be honest, I didn't primarily learn how to do that through reading the Bible. I found godly people who I trusted and then I just imitated what they did. If you heard me pray, it would sound like Robbie Dawkins was in the room praying. If you heard me come over and prophesy to someone, it would just sound like little minivan was prophesying or ministering. I just did what I saw my mom do when she would talk to a cashier at the store. I didn't like make my own way. I just did exactly how she did it. And I did that for a while before I started to kind of build on it and, and let my personality flow through. You know, in the West, and especially in our, our society today, we are so individualistic and we so value freedom that we abuse freedom. And we, we abuse the right to do it our own way. There's wisdom in imitating others. There's wisdom in following the wisdom that's gone before you and, and when it's taken somewhere in a positive place. So before I, the two things I wanna do with my remaining time are to give you some practical kind of guidelines about what imitation looks like in a healthy way and then just tell you my 10 observations as a, if I was doing a day with Jesus, as like a day in the life of the Lord of all creation, I wanna share with you 10 observations I have from those passages we read at the beginning, okay? So here's what I would exhort us when it, in terms of um, imitation being healthy, okay? So imitation is healthy when all three of the below are present. Number one, we're imitating Christ-like qualities in someone. We need to be up in here, okay? We need to read the Bible. We need to study it. We need to listen to it. 
We need to talk with other people about it so that we can know when we, we encounter something that is deviating from the wisdom of Scripture and from the life of God and the life of Jesus. <coughs> so we want to imitate Christ-like qualities. If someone is, is Christ-like, okay, they're a great candidate. And, or if what they're doing is Christ-like, they're a great candidate for imitation. And that is a great candidate for imitation. But these other two have to be present as well. Number one, we need to be grateful for who God has made me and what he has called me to do. If deep down I'm actually unhappy with who I am or I'm just insecure about who I am, like in a very fundamental way, which all of us battle insecurity. I mean, don't get me wrong. But if I am like looking to someone else and I want to do the things they're doing because I actually don't think that I am awesome and I'm valuable and I'm made in the image of God, and I don't, and the, th the people that I'm called to be around or the work I'm called to do doesn't actually, I don't actually have esteem for it, then our imitation is gonna be toxic and it's gonna actually hurt us. So like Wilson needs to go, Lord, thank you for making me this skinny little white guy. Lord, I embrace my receding hairline. I embrace my demonic voices as I read, as I read scripture that I, you know, just kidding. You know, I embrace that I am Van and Lori's son, you know, I, I embrace that my calling is to minister to Vineyard Northwest and to people here in Cincinnati, Ohio and Corian Township. I'm thankful, Lord. Thank you so much for trusting me with these people. My people aren't in New York City. My people aren't in Abu Dhabi. You know, my people aren't in San Francisco. That's not who you've, where you've assigned me. You've assigned me here and I'm thankful for it. I embrace it, Lord. And then I can go, okay, now, John Mark Comer, I want to learn how to preach really effectively like you. Or Robbie Dawkins, I want to learn how you heal the sick, and I want to I do it the way you do it. It's only when I'm first thankful for who God has made me, and I'm grateful for the assignment he's given me, that I can then imitate others in a healthy way. And then thirdly, <coughs> we have to be on guard against jealous comparison. That's always going to weave its way in when imitation comes into play. So write down this scripture reference with me. James 3, 13 through 15. Read that this week and apply it to imitation, okay? James 3, 13 to 15. It gives us a really good warning about how comparison can lead um, to a really dark place and unhealthy place in our life. James 3, 13 through 15. Now to end, let me read you my 10 observations from Jesus stilling the storm and then casting the demons out and then forgiving the man and healing him. Here are the 10 things that stuck out to me when I have my imitation lens on, okay? When I read the scripture with imitation lens, these are the 10 things. Number one, Jesus slept during a life-threatening storm. I mean, some of us can't sleep when we take an Ambien, turn the lights out, and have a cup of tea first. Right? Like, Jesus knew how to sleep. Anyone in the room who has trouble sleeping at night, you are like, you, you know that this is not something to take for granted, the ability to sleep. It's easy to take this story and just totally overly, overly spiritualize it and be like, wow, look at how blah, 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 and praying in tongues in his sleep, I bet, you know? No, like, I think part of it is he was exhausted from ministry 
And he knew how to let go of the worry and the anxiety. He knew how to not take other people's burdens on himself, even though he could take all the burdens on himself, and to go to sleep. Sleep is spiritual. Number two, Jesus confronted his disciples. When they are scared of dying, you know, very reasonable in my opinion, but um, he says, you of little faith. He doesn't just rebuke the wind. He addresses his disciples first. He was more concerned with their spiritual development and their growth and him, his discipleship of them than he was even of the storm. Number three, Jesus asks his disciples a question. Now the fact that he confronts them and then asks the question tells us that that question was like an invitation to, to, for them to go home and journal, you know, for them to think, what's going on here? Jesus is inviting them into a conversation. I want to be like that. That's how I want to disciple. That's how I want to lead is confronting, but also asking questions with mercy and, and curiosity and not assuming I know everything. Number four, this is crazy. Jesus left when he was asked to. Then the whole town went out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they pleaded with him to leave their region. Next verse, Jesus stepped into a boat, crossed over, and came to his own town. Jesus respected their boundaries. He was okay with it. He didn't need to be accepted there. When they asked him to leave, he left. Number five, Jesus did ministry in his home. Where was he? In his own town. And listen to Mark 9, which is the parallel story. You know, this is when they rip the roof off and lower the guy down on ropes. It's the same story. Listen to what Matthew 9 says. <coughs> my, my bad, Mark 2. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. And then the, the exact story comes. So Jesus is in his home, getting the roof ripped off, and he ministers to the guy, heals him. Jesus, he had boundaries. He, he, he could say, when people said no, he respected it. But he also would let people into his life. And he ministered in his own home. How cool is that, man? Revival is going to break out in each of our homes. Jesus ministered with compassion. Son, Take, take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. This is some random person. Like, he wasn't saying son, like, son. He was like, son, like, I love you. Take heart, your sins are forgiven. He ministered with compassion. I don't imagine the Pharisees and the teachers of the law calling people son and telling them to take heart, you know? Jesus ministered from a place of love towards people. Number seven. Jesus asked the teachers of the law a question. Number eight, Jesus confronted the teachers of the law. Notice how with the teachers of the law, he asks a question and then confronts. It's because it was rhetorical for them. He wasn't trying to go super redemptive with them. He was like, you guys are in a position of power. You're abusing it. I'm going to call you out on it. Number nine, Jesus cared about all parts of the paralyzed man. And I put parts in parentheses. Because we have such a, we are living in a society where like, spirit, soul, body, heart, flesh, will, blah, 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 blah. And we're like, parcel humans up into all these different pieces. 
We are one unified being. You know that when we get resurrected someday, we're gonna be in a body. When Jesus was resurrected from the dead, he had a new glorified body. He ate, you could touch him. But it was like next level body, you know, like he could walk through walls and teleport. So my point here is, Jesus wasn't just concerned with forgiving his sins in a kind of Western reformed way of thinking about that. He would cared about his entire being, his guilt and shame, as well as the guilt and shame he was hosting in his body and it had paralyzed him. And number 10, Jesus was okay not getting the glory. When the crowd saw this, they were filled with awe and they praised God who had given such authority to man. This is really important because they're praising God, not Jesus. They're praising God for giving authority to man, to Jesus. These people don't have the revelation that Jesus is someone they should worship. They have the revelation that Yahweh is someone they should worship, and they're astounded that Yahweh would work through a human being. And Jesus was okay with not getting the glory, with, with not getting the glory there. He wanted the glory to go to the Father. So will you guys stand with me? And prayer team, will you please come down right now? If, if God is stirring your heart right now around this message, I'd encourage you, come down and get prayer. Who knows, what if you get hit and you're on the floor for two more hours because you came down and got prayer by the power of God changing and rewiring things in you? What if you have sickness in your body and you come up and get prayer this morning and you get healed? What if you have emotional pain because you walked down here and asked someone to pray for you, that emotional pain is lifted? Like, we don't just do the prayer team up here as like a, well, there's no prayer team. No, we believe that God's like eager to touch, bless, love, free, liberate, heal this church body that he loves so much. So whether you have a thing you know you need prayer for, or if God was just stirring your heart, he's speaking to you, I'd encourage you, come get prayer this morning and, and see what God does next in your life through that. So Father, we want to be imitators of your son, Jesus. And I thank you that we get to be friends with Jesus, that we're not slaves. You don't make us slaves. We can decide that we want to serve you, but you call us friends. So Lord, I just pray that this whole idea of imitating Jesus would just stick in our minds. Let it be a new filter we read scripture through and let us live our life, our discipleship of others, our receiving of mentorship at work, um, as we parent, as we make meals, everything we do, Lord, let this thing of imitation rest on our minds so that we can be your disciples. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, everyone, I hope you have an amazing Sunday. Um, go enjoy some Skyline Chili.